1: Hi, and welcome again to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Now, today we're going to be talking about the largest and fastest growing field in energy today. Now, what is that? Is it solar? Is it wind? No, those still hold less than 1% of world market share. Is it nuclear? No. Oil? No. What about natural gas and the shale gas revolution? Well, as amazing as that is, that is still not the fastest growing sector of energy in the world. The fastest growing sector of energy in the world is coal. Coal has been instrumental to the drastic or dramatic standard of living improvement over the last 20 or 30 years in China and India, which have multiplied their electricity production from coal many, many times over. And yet, coal is by far the most hated energy source in the world. In the United States, groups like the Sierra Club say that we need to go beyond coal. And our government is waging an all-out war on coal. Now, the war metaphor is used a lot, but here I'm, I'm using it fairly literally, because they are trying to stop the production and consumption of coal by force. And here today to talk about the war on coal is someone who's been writing a ton on it lately uh, and is a friend of the show and a previous guest on the show, Dr. Marlo Lewis of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. So, uh, Marlo, welcome back.
0: Thank you, Alex. Thank you for having me back again.
1: Okay, so before we get into the war on coal, could you elaborate just a little bit on the importance of coal to modern life here and around the world?
0: Well, coal has been the workforce of the Industrial Revolution, which has made it possible for the planet to sustain uh, something like six times or seven times as many people as existed before the Industrial Revolution and for the average per capita lifespan or the average lifespan to increase, to more than double, uh, and for the average person to Um, to have access to more than twice as many calories uh, and for people not only to live longer but to live healthier because energy, um, electricity in particular, uh, is the basis for just about every aspect of of the modern economy, especially the information economy, the digital economy. A lot of your electrons and your bits in your computer uh, originate with coal. And like everything in life, uh, coal has, uh, there are trade-offs associated with coal. One of them is pollution, but uh, pollution has been reduced dramatically over the last 40 years, especially in the United States and other modern countries. And as coal production and consumption have increased, air pollution, especially air pollution from coal has declined For a variety of reasons, including the one that you mentioned, the war on coal, coal as a share of America's electricity has declined in recent years. You know, only a few years ago, coal contributed more than 50% of all our electric generation. Today, it's down to 34%. And a lot of that is simply because uh, of the regulatory climate that we've seen established under the obama present presidency uh people are just saying hey it's not worth building new coal plants and so you have more coal plants retiring and none being built and so that's why uh i think it was last year for the first time coal generation dipped down to below 40 percent and today i just read it's now down to 34 percent now coal i think still provides more than half of what we call baseload power in this country. But in terms of just um, day-to-day electric generation, um, it's still the largest single source, but it is no longer more than half.
1: Uh, you mentioned the issue of, of bits and bytes, and I think that's particularly instructive because often when we talk about energy Uh, There's this view that there's just a certain amount of energy that we need, and that's whatever we happen to be be using currently, or often environmentalists will think it's a lot less than we use currently. And the idea of energy growth is very little on the horizon. And yet, if you look at the 1970s, you have environmentalists like Amory Lovins, Sierra Club saying— We already use too much electricity, you know, we're using way too much electricity, and yet electricity usage more than tripled in part, in large part, because of the power hungry computer revolution, which literally would have been impossible without increased coal production. And unfortunately, nuclear production was dramatically slowed by the same people. But I think that's an important thing to look at, because the technologies of future are going to require more energy, including energy from coal.
0: That's absolutely true. Uh, I remember I went to college in the 70s, early 70s, and basically uh, you were lucky if you had a toaster oven in your dormitory room, maybe you had a stereo system. Nobody had a television or an entertainment center, there were no video games, um, and nobody had cell phones to be plugged in and charged, Nobody nobody had laptops. Uh, And so uh, I think uh, kids today are just surrounded with electronics and maybe just maybe that means that they'll have a greater sense of reality about the importance of electricity and the fuel sources that generate electricity than did the generations, uh, the generation of the of the late 60s and 1970s, which gave birth to the environmental movement.
1: Uh, Just one thought I want to. Sort of put out there before we get into the specifics on the war on coal, and, and this is sort of to to jump on to your point about pollution and how every you know every every product has byproducts. I mean, by the nature of it, you're trying to combine materials to create value, and almost inevitably, there's going to be something you don't want. As we've discussed on previous episodes of Power Hour, capitalism and technology figure out better and better ways to turn those byproducts even into valuable things, to turn wealth into waste, as as Pierre said talks about. Um, but I think it's important to to recognize that pollution is should be viewed as a contextual issue. So let's take the advent of fire. When the first man burned a piece of wood, smoke came out, and he breathed in the smoke. Now, is that pollution? Should he not have burned the wood because he was breathing in smoke? Do you say, he's a pollutant, we should shut him down, we should declare war on the man who invented fire? Well, obviously not, because the whole context is his, his livelihood, including his environment, were immeasurably poorer without fire than with it. And coal is a form of fire. Our whole modern economy is, is powered by various forms of heat engines, like the, the steam engine, the gas turbine, etc. So when we talk about these rationales for this war on coal, we have to remember what they're talking about is stopping the fire of the modern world. And that is not something that we can just write off as insignificant and just say, oh, it's a pollutant, because really, in almost every case, we're going to define it as a positive, not defining it as a pollutant.
0: Yes, well, uh, for some reason, uh, blame it on the zeitgeist, there is this mentality that pervades a certain very vocal and influential segment of the population Which uh, quite literally believes that cleanliness is next to godliness or Gaianess, (laughs) because they're not all of them are religious in the conventional sense. But to some people, any little bit of dirt it seems is morally intolerable.
1: But let's—hippies are—hippies are are sort of known. A—they're known for being dirty. Right. And B, life before coal was much dirtier than life with coal. Now, at the beginning, you're, it's right. a new technology. You certainly have a lot of byproduct and not expertise on how to get rid of it. But if you talk about sanitation, people having one outfit to wear per year before the textile revolution, it does not make coal. If you look at even even China and India with bad pollution laws, their environments, their their health is much better. Uh, in general and if they had proper laws, which you know, not not everything is just controlled by the state and it doesn't care if you blow smoke in one individual's house. We have much better laws. I mean if you had that coal makes coal I mean coal makes our environment better. Now you could say, well, it has more of a byproduct than natural gas. But still the net of using coal versus not using coal is incredibly uh positive. So if they care about cleanliness, they should go kiss a coal plant to paraphrase Ayn Rand.
0: Ah. Well, I I completely agree with you, but um, as you know, people often just obsess on what's right before their eyes or on some image that's presented to them by a propagandist, and they they don't see the big picture with all the context. They don't see all the microbes that they don't have to come in contact with because modern society is so antiseptically clean, one reason being that we have so much energy uh, at our disposal for for purposes of sanitation. Um, and so all they'll see in their minds is the image of a smokestack. or but here's a perfect example, and uh, this is an issue that's very hot right now in Washington. It will be debated and voted on if not this week, then very likely next week in the Senate. The EPA has a regulation called the Mercury Air Toxics Standard Rule, or as I prefer to call it because it's more accurate, the Utility MACT Rule, maximum, available, maximum Achievable Control Technology Standards for Utilities. Now, one of the reasons why EPA says it must regulate this is because there are trace amounts of an acid gas called hydrogen chloride emitted by coal-fired power plants. And it, it just turns out that that uh, the that in in order to get rid of every little speck of acid gas from from coal fired power plants would basically preclude any new coal fired power plants from ever being built. That's how stringent this regulation. It sounds is.
1: like such a coincidence.
0: Okay, yeah, it sounds like a coincidence. <laughs> I mean, for example, here's here's what's really hilarious is that the detection limit for the monitoring systems that would have to be in place to determine whether or not the coal plant complies with this maximum available control technology, maximum, excuse me, maximum achievable control technology standard for acid gases. The detection limit um, is is much greater than the limitation that's actually put on the plant. So no one would ever really know whether the plant was in compliance or not, which is one reason why no new plants will be built because the pollution control manufacturers can't even guarantee that the equipment will work because the amount that is allowed to be released is lower than the amount that the, that the monitoring equipment can reliably detect. Okay, but here's what really is incredible about this is that EPA actually has a health standard for acid gases. It's a standard based on parts per million of the acid gas in a cubic meter of air, all right? And it turns out that already the emissions from a coal-fired power plant are anywhere from 20 to 200 times less concentrated per cubic meter of air than what EPA considers safe as a lifetime daily exposure. But still, any any little molecule is too much for some people. For some people, it's just an outrage that there's anything, any little spick of dirt, or in this case, acid gas in the air, and that's enough for EPA to decide that these very onerous controls, which may actually kill the future of an entire industry, are necessary it, what, uh, that that's what i mean by this sort of clean freak mentality that looks at every little molecule of pollution as anathema and it's it's just i, I don't understand it i mean I, as and as you say hippies are not known for their cleanliness well, yeah, 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 except that, when it comes to the <laughs> the electric utility industry no
1: see well i think i at least uh Partially understand it. Because I want to just challenge again this idea that there's any concern with cleanliness, danger, harm. I, this is all a smokescreen. And uh, yeah. you had a recent report on, how do you say, M-A-S-T or M-A-C-T?
0: M-A-C-T. M-A-C-T.
1: Right. Um, one of the things I noticed in your report, which is incredibly, is something you point out, that's incredibly typical of the green movement, is that they are completely ob- oblivious or unconcerned with natural harms to human life, harms that are not man-made. So for instance, you you point out natural mercury levels in fish, they don't care about that at all. Natural levels of radiation in Colorado, completely unconcerned. Natural changes in climate, great. Whatever changes naturally is fantastic. Even ultimately natural predators to man, you know, they they think, you know, we should have probably more of those. Um, you know, natural diseases like malaria, they're against us killing them with unnatural things like DDT. So what's really happening here is that the idea of an effect on human life is is a ruse. It's meant to make it appealing. Because what if you look at the common denominator and what they care about and what they don't, it's not its impact on human life. It's whether it's man-made or not. And they what they oppose is many positive man-made things like coal. Um, DDT etc and they either make up Or dramatically and out of context Inflate the harms of it While being perfectly at home With the harms that nature inflicts on us un- When it's unmolded By technology
0: Well uh, There is that There is definitely that strain uh, in, uh, in environmentalism um, The idea that somehow Nature is Perfect or raw nature, uh, nature undomesticated, untamed by man, which of course is just crazy uh, because it is, it is absolutely correct that without modern forms of energy such as coal, life is brutal, nasty, and short. And um, in, in some cases, this is just the mentality of spoiled children who take for granted everything they have and assume that it would always be there even if adults weren't allowed to go out and work and earn a living to produce it, you know. Um, the, the, uh, of course, I went to college with all kinds of people like this who condemned daddy's materialism um, and lived high off the hog off of, off of daddy's surplus um, and were, were, were more than content to live a life of idle consumers while condemning the consumer society that created the wealth that made it possible for them to live a life of leisure. And um, I mean, I even, I even remember in the 60s and early 70s, I mean, because we were in a boom phase of the economy and there were all these kids in the baby boom generation who got to reinforce each other's r- r- silly ideas, thinking that work was really unnecessary. And, and the proof was that they didn't have to work and they were doing just fine. You know, but of course, mom and dad had to work to get them to that, to get them to that point. And if you go about attacking the capitalist uh, system, um, then they'll find out that not only do they have to work, but they can't find work when they need to, when they, when they need to support themselves.
1: Now, uh, mentioning the idea of, of spoiled children, um, which is (laughs) definitely one, one of their major aspects, Um, I mean, just demographically, even Um, what strikes me as I mean, two things strike me as vicious about one is that they don't care about the future. I mean, the future of progress, and they have no concept that we should want more and better technology and more and better energy for the future, because any given one of our lives will be longer and better. Uh, because of that, but they 're particularly ignorant, so they, they say we go we should go beyond coal now in the United States right now, we have sort of an interesting energy situation because we have a boom in shale gas, and we have extremely cheap gas in part because our government is holding up the ability to export gas, so our gas can be five times cheaper than gas around the world, whereas if they allowed us to export gas, the, there would be more of an equilibrium. but some people take that as evidence of. Oh, we can go beyond coal. Like we're, you know, coal is now unnecessary. Now, of course, Sierra Club is now going beyond gas. Once they collected a a twenty six million dollar check from the gas industry, they no longer needed to appease them. Um, but it, it strikes me as particularly vicious these spoiled children, among other things, and and um, worshippers of wilder, wilderness worshippers, really that they don't pay attention to their effect on the poorer parts of the world, which have been either dramatically improved by coal or need to be dramatically improved by coal.
0: Well, yeah, that's that, that's absolutely correct what you said. And uh, let me address several points that you made there. One is, yes, the Sierra Club has gone from beyond coal now to beyond natural gas. And what, we've, what we saw in the environmental movement was a... Uh, uh, a brief love affair with natural gas when they were willing to call it a bridge fuel uh, to what they fancied was the, uh, you know, a beyond petroleum, clean energy economy. They liked natural gas as long as the supply of natural gas in the United States looked like it was running out and the price of natural gas was so high that it was driving U.S. manufacturing firms to relocate overseas. Okay. But then as soon as the shale revolution occurred, and all of a sudden it, it became clear that we had hundreds of years of natural gas in this country, if we were allowed to exploit it, and that natural gas was so cheap that there was no way that their preferred renewable energies like wind and solar could ever compete. Then they decided it was time to be beyond natural gas. And of course, they also launched their regulatory and propaganda assault on hydraulic fracturing so that we couldn't use the natural gas. And um, now as far as coal, the importance of coal, this is is a point that, that... I and my organization, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, has used for years, way back in the in the in the 1990s, when the Kyoto Protocol, the climate treaty that the United States, thankfully, ever ratified, was first being debated, uh, and the proponents of Kyoto's uh, got the whole developing world on board, at least to ratify, by saying, "Look, you will be exempt from." from mandatory limits on on, uh, fossil energy production. What we warned at the time was, this is a bait and switch, and after they have created this treaty and put the international machinery, the bureaucracy, the administrative apparatus in place, they will come after you, China, they will come after you, India, and they will say, okay, it's time enough, now you have to limit your emissions. And of course that means you can't use coal to to develop your economies. It means that your that your peoples by the millions will be condemned to energy squalor. So if you don't want that fate to happen to you a little bit down the line, the time to oppose the Kyoto Protocol is now. Don't ratify it. And but you see, they were gulled into this by the by, the promise that if the treaty went into effect, which it did, that they would get billions of dollars in foreign aid, now relabeled climate assistance from the West, and that has not materialized. But the European Union, the United Nations, the environmental movement is still campaigning for China, India, and these other developing countries to adopt binding limitations on their carbon dioxide emissions, which means that they too will have to stop using coal. And that's just a recipe for starvation on a massive scale. Fortunately, China and India are still saying no, and I expect them to continue saying no, but they have put themselves in a rhetorical in a rhetorical um, uh, box, a rhetorical bind, because they have ratified this treaty, the premise of which Climate change is this great earth-shaking catastrophe which must be solved through mandatory emission reductions, and um, it would have been much better if China and India had said no not only to emission limits but to the treaty that only works according to the premises of the treaty if all countries are carbon-constrained, if every country's access to affordable coal-based power is cut off.
1: Um, getting back to the idea of the war on coal more broadly, um, we, we talked about one piece of legislation. What are, what are other things that are happening on the American scene with the EPA and other agencies to oppose coal production or, or other aspects of the coal industry?
0: Well, one of the biggest ones is a, is a regulation that was proposed, I believe, in April, And uh, the comment period, the public comment period, ends this month. I definitely will submit a comment. It's called the New Source Performance Standards for Greenhouse Gases from Electric Generating Units. And this is one of the craziest regulations I've ever seen, because what EPA has done has said, okay, all... All fossil fuel fire, all fossil fueled power plants must meet a carbon dioxide performance standard, which is um, note that it can emit no more than 1,000 pounds of carbon dioxide per million BTUs of energy. And it just so happens that only natural gas combined cycle fossil fuel power plants can meet this standard. So that means that coal-fired power plants, no new coal-fired power plants can be built. Uh, Now, EPA says, ah, but you see, if the coal plant installs carbon capture and storage technology, it will be able to comply with the standard, except EPA admits that carbon capture and storage technology is not economical. It will raise the cost of electricity from a state-of-the-art coal plant by 80%. All right, so so basically what EPA has said is, and here's, here's why this is just a crazy rule, because a new source performance standard is supposed to be an adequately demonstrated system of emission reduction. And that means it should be a system of emission reduction for the specific type of facility you're talking about. What EPA has basically said is that a natural gas combined cycle plant or natural, ga- or natural gas turbines are an emission control technology for coal-fired power plants. It's absurd. I mean, EPA might as well have said, well, we're going to make the standard zero emissions and then nuclear reactors are going to be an adequately demonstrated system <laughs> of emission control for natural gas turbines. I mean, it's just so cockamamie, it's, it's, the, it's the epitome of politically results-oriented or directed regulation, where, where impartial scientific criteria need not apply, what matters is the result that we want, the result we want is no new coal plants built, so we're going to define natural gas combined cycle as an emission control technology for coal. I mean, it's 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 just outrageous, but that's what they've done. So that's and it's and it's a real belt and suspenders approach because both this rule, the new source performance standards rule, and the maximum achievable control technology standards rule will have the exact same result, which is that you can't build a new coal-fired power plant. And then there are other regulations that EPA has adopted. Wait, a can I can I ask about, can I ask the, about the last one? Go ahead. Um, sure, go ahead, please. J-
1: just just it it seems like so this has been happening over the past couple of years where um the environmentalists um and their allies in congress and in the presidency have they've had a clear belief that co2 is a pollutant that coal oil and even natural gas are bad and should be largely eliminated uh from production and because they couldn't pass that legislatively, they've been all of these regulatory things have been, you know, have been different workarounds. And what'll happen is, even as corrupt as the g- generic EPA system is, which I think is, is completely wrong, and we should abolish it and have a property rights based system based on science. E- They'll even manipulate that, but it's kind of like the healthcare thing in that because they have there's a widespread agreement on the premise, not not enough widespread to pass a bill, but still widespread that CO two is a pollutant, especially that coal um, is a fundamentally polluting technology. That's what seems to make them be able to get away with it, you know, because if they did something that if there wasn't this view, I don't think they could get away, even have a chance. There wouldn't be a public comment period; it just wouldn't even be proposed. But because they have a kind of moral high ground for many people, it seems like that's what's allowing them to get away with it. I wonder what you think of that.
0: Yeah. Again, Alex, you're spot on. I mean, you've really touched on one of my favorite uh, issues here, which is that the EPA under the Obama administration, more than ever before, I'm not saying they never did it before, but more so than ever, is attempting to achieve uh, through regulation, what some people call the back door of regulation, what the Obama administration stunningly failed to to achieve through the front door of legislation. And what the EPA is doing, really, is legislating policy. It is usurping power that the Constitution vested in Congress, and Barack Obama was, was pretty He's been pretty uh, upfront uh, at various times, not always, about what's, what's going on here. He said when he was campaigning as a presidential candidate in 2008, July 2008, he said this in an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle, and it's uh, the the YouTube videos are all over the place. I mean, it's anybody can find this. He said that under his plan for a cap and trade program your electricity rates would, quote, necessarily skyrocket. And he said people could build new coal-fired power plants if they wanted to, only it would, quote, bankrupt them, unquote. All right. So then they thought they were riding high through 2009. You had the Waxman-Markey bill, which passed narrowly in the House in June of 2009. And then all of a sudden it became politically radioactive And in November 2010, uh, almost 30 House members who voted for the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill got sent pink slips by their constituents, okay? And so then the next day, the day after the election, President Obama had a press conference and he was asked, well, what about cap-and-trade? Because it was clear that the public uh, had turned against it, that's why... The Senate, all through 2010, didn't even dare bring it to a vote. And uh, during that, by the end, by, by I think it was August of 2010, S- Senate Majority Leader Harry, Harry Reid said, it is no longer in my vocabulary, it referring to cap and trade. He wouldn't even, it became the policy that dare not speak its name, okay? The day after the election, 2000, November 2010, President Obama said, well, cap and trade was never the end. It was only a means. And there, I will be looking for other means. There are other ways of skinning the cat. Well, these other ways of skinning the cat is basically EPA acting like a super legislature and legislating climate policy and energy policy or anti-energy policy more accurately for the nation. And that's what's going on with the uh, new source performance standards rule, it's what's going on with the maximum achievable control technology standards rule. Congress never said that we should ban the construction of new coal-fired power plants, but that is the effect of both of these rules, and EPA is doing it on its own say-so. And that's, I think, the, the main reason why Congress should overturn these rules, wholly apart from the merits, which I think there is a very strong case on the merits to overturn the rules, but because under our constitution, which is designed to ensure democratic accountability for all policy decisions, only the people's representatives get to make these big decisions about the content and direction of, of, of policy, national policy, not unelected bureaucrats whom voters cannot punish at the ballot box.
1: Um, yes, I think it's a really important point that there is the whole just antipathy and, and disrespect for the American Constitution in all of the, the, these shenanigans. Um, I I think my sense of it is so. There's there's the issue of Congress passes a Congress is not passing a specific law to do this. My my view, as far as I've thought it through, is. If Congress did pass a law to limit things on the basis of greenhouse emissions, that would be unconstitutional uh, for at least two reasons. One is that there is absolutely—so the idea is that they're saying the basis of this is that CO2 emissions are you know incredibly destructive to human life, that in particular that coal is. Now, if we look at the last hundred years of CO2 emissions— um climate-related deaths have gone down by something like 99%. Crop yields have mm-hmm. gone up. So all the evidence we have so far in terms of actual impact on human life is that CO2 emissions in these technologies dramatically improve it. Now, you can't just, you can't just say, oh, you're not allowed to do this because I made a model of the future that has no predictive um, proof behind it. And so we're going to throw away all of our, we're going to ban all these technologies based on a completely arbitrary model. I mean, I can make make a model that says CO2 will make life 10 times longer. I mean, you can make any model you want. So it's completely unscientific, one. But two, even if there was a scientific significance to it, it cannot, given the current state of the world, it cannot be, it cannot accomplish its goal. So take AB32 in California, our ridiculous climate law. That law can have no demonstrable effect on the thing it is, it is designed to impact. Therefore, the basis of the law is non-existent. In order to pass any law just hypothetically against this, you need to be able to prove that passing this law would actually address the problem. But you can't do that in one country while China is just multiplying our, our you know, while China is increasing emissions. So it's, it's just not a real law. I, as far as I understand it, it should just, it's unconstitutional through and through.
0: Well, that's that's a that's that's a long conversation. I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, it, it almost sounds like you're saying that that stupid laws
1: are, are no, no. But the law a law has stupid. a a law has a basis yeah. for it. So, if I mean, right. if the basis is not if, if the basis is impo, if if something is unenforceable, which is I mean, it, or its its basis cannot be achieved. Like, if the right. basis of something is that we're going to discover all the world's unicorns and it's going to cost a hundred billion dollars. I don't think that's I don't think that's a real law because it's, it's it's stipulating the goal of it is something that's that's provably impossible given the current context. So I'm floating that out there. If any legal scholars want to call into the show, I mean not call in because we don't have calling in, but if they want to write me and either right. affirm my ideas or blast them, I'm I'm eager for either.
0: Yeah, let me get to another point that you raised um, as to how it is they get away <laughs> with going around. The constitutional forms and formalities, and uh, you know how they how they just subvert the separation of powers with with a smile. And you mentioned it's because they think they have the moral high ground because they depict pollution as this great uh, health threat to the American people. And I just want to mention then something uh, that, that I think this is a major point uh, in the debate over the the utility maximum achievable control technology rule, the MAC rule, which is, here, here's the really hilarious part of this, is that this regulation supposedly makes us better off because it will reduce what they call hazardous air pollutions, the main one being mercury. Now, in the paper that I've written, and I've also got a Forbes, a piece coming out in Forbes, uh, sometime soon that people can read if they don't want to read the entire paper, which is available at CEI.org. It's called um uh, All Pain and No Gain, The Illusory Benefit of the Utility MACT. But anyway, um it turns out that I mean it's it's all bogus, but even if EPA were telling the God's honest truth, the health benefits of the regulation would would uh uh, if you monetize them, would be no greater than $6 million and would be as low as half a million dollars. Okay. This is according to EPA's own estimate. And of course, it's, it's I show in the paper that the real value is zero. But even if you take EPA at, at, at face value, it's between five, half a million and $6 million. But EPA itself acknowledges that the cost of the rule is $9.6 billion So the costs outweigh the benefits by at least 1,600 to 1 and as much as 19,200 to 1, according to EPA's own numbers. Now, how does EPA then with a straight face say, this rule is reasonable. Congress should not try to overturn it. Well, EPA claims that the rule will incidentally or coincidentally reduce emissions of a non hazardous air pollutant, particulate matter, and that the that the coincidental reductions in particulate matter will have the effect of say uh, of averting anywhere from four thousand two hundred to eleven thousand premature deaths a year, which EPA then says translates into a benefit to the economy of somewhere between $33 billion and $89 billion. Okay, now, there's this wonderful lady who works for an organization called NARA Economic Consulting Associates, Ann Smith, Anne with an E, A-N-N-E. I highly recommend that you all go on the internet and, and read her congressional testimonies, read her study. Anyway, what she demonstrates conclusively is that Almost 100 percent of these alleged averted deaths occur in areas of the United States that already are in attainment with EPA's National Ambient Air Quality Standard for particulate matter, for the fine particulate matter that EPA says is the deadly kind. All right. And what is a National Ambient Air Quality Standard? It's a level of air pollution that EPA says is protective of public health with an adequate margin of safety so all of these averted law all these averted premature deaths are make-believe um you know it's like we could say to epa well which time were you lying were you lying when you said that the current national air ambient air quality standard is protective of public health with an adequate margin of safety or are you lying when you say that reductions of pm of, of fine particulate matter below the standard or, or excuse me, or are you lying when you say that concentrations of this stuff below the standard are killing people by ten, by the tens of thousands? And I mean she go, uh, Ann Smith goes on to show in addition to this that even if EPA lowers the current standard, which they probably will do, um, that's still anywhere from 94% to almost a hundred percent of the averted deaths, Will occur at levels below the new revised tougher standard. So, I mean, this is just all hokum. It's total baloney. But they're scaring people into believing that air pollution is killing people by the thousands, and that's why the mercury rule is good, even though the pollutant that would be lowered isn't even mercury.
1: I wonder, or I very much suspect that all of these numbers are BS. I <laughs> they mean, are. certainly, I mean, there's a whole show to be had, or many shows to be had, on on what is wrong with this—the whole idea of this one regulatory entity making these utilitarian calculations for, uh, you know, that's, you know, for human beings, let alone balancing human beings and snails, which is, you know, their official mandate. Um, and versus a property rights approach, but even it's—they seem to have no real appreciation for the positive value of energy and the positive value of progress. Because if you want to talk about Averted deaths. And if we think about it seriously, if we banned coal in this country, how much would that slow every industry? You know, from the pharmaceutical industry, um, manufacturing, it's all of industry is interrelated. And just to make a kind of Hayekian point, we can't, we don't know what the future holds. All we know is that the more free we are, the more energy we can produce, the cheaper it is, the faster progress will be. So there's all of these unknown benefits that have already been suppressed because of our horrible anti-energy policies and then future energy anti energy, anti-energy policies here let alone around the world will do much more so this idea i mean imagine the 1970s they're making this rule about let's keep electricity supply fixed or lower and and they make this calculation do you think that calculation included steve jobs do you think it included modern biotechnology with all the role of computers in that did it include all modern server tech include none of those things because these guys right. do not believe in the human mind and progress. And in fact, they think anything the human mind touches is thereby corrupted, which is again why they regard anything man-made as pollution and anything nature made as wonderful.
0: Yeah, I, those, those, are all, those are all perfectly good points. And it reminds me of a, of a prank that some of my co- younger colleagues pulled a few years ago. They went to a rally an environmental rally of some sort in Washington D.C., and they they called themselves. They they they, they got T-shirts and everything, describing themselves as pro- progressives against progress. And they went around with petitions asking people to join Progressives Against Progress. And lo and behold, they got quite a few signatures. Um, but um, yeah, no, I, I it's all of these claims about. You know, deaths from air pollution and so on—they're—they're they're all based on these statistical studies. In other words, they're—they're not—they're not based on clinical trials where you have uh, double-blind experiments. You know, where the subjects don't know whether they're getting the clean air or the polluted air, and the researchers don't know whether they're administering uh, air with pollution or air without. I mean, it's—it's it's all based on these weak statistical correlations and EPA. Relied, relies almost entirely on two studies, uh, one called the uh, Harvard Six Cities Study and the other one, the American Cancer Society Study, which, uh, which have these weird uh, results, like in, uh, in, in the American Cancer Society Study, it turned out that, that fine particulate matter was correlated with an increased risk of death for men, but not women for people who only went to high school, but not for people who had some college, for people who exercise moderately, but not for people who are completely sedentary, or people who exercise vigorously. And then in the other study, there were, it seemed like there were some correlations between fine particulate matter levels and death from coronary uh, disease, but there was actually a statistically significant association between um particulate matter levels and reduced incidence of death from respiratory disease respiratory diseases so i mean you know this is all i mean if you as as the, the old saying goes if you torture the data long enough it will confess and it will give you the correlations that you want in order to have a pretext for killing coal you know and um one of the the fun points that Ann Smith makes in her paper is that, um, that what EPA is assuming is something that has certainly not been validated by any medical research, which is that fine particulate matter at any level down to zero, you know, any level above zero kills people. And what she shows is that if this, if the dose response function were truly that way, then 25% of all deaths in the United States in 1980 would have been due to the inhalation of fine particulate matter. Now, you and I both know that millions of people die in this country every year, and not one coroner's report has ever listed fine particulate matter as the cause of death. And yet EPA's theory implies that 25% of everybody who died in 1980 died because of fine particulate matter pollution. So somebody is trying to pull our leg and his initials are EPA and uh, it's all completely agenda driven. And I I totally agree with you. The mindset here does not appreciate that the human mind uh, makes the world a better place uh, and a cleaner place and not just by controlling pollution, but basically by reorganizing the entire human environment so as to promote the health and life of human beings.
1: Now, let's talk about one more person or entity that's been pulling our leg. And this is this is a point of extreme outrage for me. Um, this is Chesapeake Energy giving $26 million to Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign. And not only that, I don't know, did you see the interview with uh, Aubrey McClendon the other day where he where he justified this?
0: No, I missed that. Oh, I'm sorry my to gosh. say. I, I
1: don't have the quote in front of me, but it, it was very close to, it was completely unapologetic. Now, he said they've moved beyond the Sierra Club, given that now the explicit mandate of the Sierra Club is to destroy them instead of to destroy someone very much like them. Right. But he just said, of course I did that. They're our competitor. Of course I want to destroy them with the government. I mean yeah. so so you know if 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 I'm interested in a woman and someone else did and I, I off him or I get so I get the Sierra Club to smear his reputation, my justification well, he's a competitor. I, I mean this is this is just beyond the pale, and as you mentioned so before, just so short sighted that They think that they're not—a whole organization that says CO2 emissions are evil, ultimately man-made power, any practical form of it that, you know, doesn't produce Don Quixote caliber energy is bad. You know, all of this stuff is—it's just so short-sighted, and just—we're at a—I mean, what Rob Bradley calls political capitalism, we're at a stage where the head of even a very productive company that's part of a revolution believes in competition by destruction—
0: I know it, it. It's it's so far from uh, from any any decent person's sense of fair play that it's that it's that it's almost hard to describe. And I mean that that really is. I mean, people some are the, the anti-capitalists claim that capitalism is a you know is an amoral system at best, but really it's not. The the whole it really depends on the rules of fair play it's about competition and uh, as we all know you know if you fix if, if the race is fixed or the or the fight is fixed or if you you know you handicap you drug your opponent you know know, i mean that's you haven't won the race you have cheated and one one legitimate function of government is to prevent cheating you know lying fraud stealing um and, and that's basically what Aubrey McClendon was trying to do. He was trying to get the Sierra Club to help him steal the market from coal. Uh, you know, it's fine if he can outcompete coal on the basis of value to consumers. But what he was trying to do was rig the marketplace against coal and Okay, not everybody has a sense of honor, but people should at least, especially a business leader, should at least be smart enough to understand some basic rules of, of uh, survival, one of which is united we stand, divided we fall. You know, if we don't hang together, we all hang separately. You know, if you don't speak up when they come for the Catholics, then there'll be nobody left to speak up for you when they come for you, you know the old lesson, supposedly, that we all learned from the Holocaust. And instead, what you see uh, is this predatory behavior. And, um, well, it turns out the Chesapeake Energy, you know, is now having some hard times. And, uh, you know, so maybe there is some justice in this world.
1: Yeah, there's such a—what bothers me about it is that you know when they're when they're producing shale gas, which is an incredibly productive and valuable activity, there's a certain amount of public shame or or at least um wimp wimpiness about it, and yet there's a certain moral confidence when they support something called beyond coal but as I mean as we 've talked about like beyond coal isn't just beyond coal for the u s although that would be that would be bad enough it's beyond coal for the world, so again this is something that's brought let's say, a billion people clean drinking water in the last 20 years, which has been a major improvement, which has extended the the life in India by at least five years. This is something people's real lives depend on. And so to any companies out there who are thinking about this, thinking about doing anything like this or doing anything like this, join the forces of capitalism, both because it's moral to have a free market at home where you compete on the merits and we get as much productivity as possible, and because when you oppose that, You're opposing individual human lives here and around the world. So if you think you're doing a good thing, you're not. And if you want to do a good thing, promote freedom for coal and every other productive form of energy because we need a lot more energy, not a lot less. And we're not going to get it from, I think as Robert Bryce put it, it's like sails and (laughs) sunbeams.
0: Right, and as Bryce once also said, electric cars are the next big thing, and always will be. <laughs>
1: well, you know, they might actually be someday if we're actually allowed right. to produce electricity at low rates, but not not from, not from <laughs> uh not from, yeah, I mean the idea that environmentalists like electric cars is such a joke as soon as if they ever became at all practical, they would just point out the the mining process to get the materials, the toxicity of the batteries the fuel source being coal, uh, or natural gas, um, the evil of despoiling the countryside, urban sprawl, building, you know, too much (laughs) construction for streets, you know, too many shopping malls. And we really need to have, I don't know, some more communal lifestyle, even though of course you can't have a close lifestyle when you don't have any, uh, Energy, So, you know, it's, you know, because you all have to spread out so you can find enough animal dung and wood, you know, to make a fire to live uh, till the next day.
0: Yeah, well, the only people who want to go back and live in the Middle Ages are the people who fancy that they would be lords of the manor. And um, uh, the the capitalism haters should uh, reflect on the fact that not everybody could get to be the lord of the manor that most people will end up as serfs. And so it's it's far better to uh, let the Industrial Revolution march on and democratize wealth and mobility for all the world's people.
1: Yeah, and you know, for those of you who've read Atlas Shrugged, and if there are any of you in the audience who haven't, go do it, but— um it's really at the end of the book there's just this point about how ultimately the motivation of the people is a combination of power but usually that that originates from a real feeling of an inferiority and a hatred of the people who are better than them. So, you know, industry is an example of people who actually get things done, who actually promote human life. The environmental movement is an example of some of a group of people who took a legitimate cause, which is pollution reduction, which industry was accomplishing very well and which just needed some some clearer laws and they used that to despoil industry and to accomplish nothing at all productive and The idea that people are getting self esteem not from creating value but from destroying it means we need a whole new environmental uh, morality. Marlo, before we wrap up, anything else you want to share with the audience or anything you want to plug?
0: No, that's, uh, oh, well, yeah, just uh, to look tomorrow for my colleague, David Beer's column in the, um, oh, gosh, what is it? in? Well, just look for David Beer, B-I-E-R. I've forgotten where he's going to publish it, but he does a critique of EPA's jobs impact assessment for this utility MAC rule here's here's what EPA EPA argues that it will create jobs on net will will create an additional 8,000 jobs and the way they tried to uh to prove this is on the basis of some study that looked at four unrelated industries petroleum steel paper and pulp and I think plastics in 1980 this study found that that an additional job was created for every $1.55 of um, of, of um, regulatory expenditure. All right. Well, all of these additional jobs were sort of clerical compliance jobs. You know, you it, you need more administrators to comply with an environmental regulation, um, but the what the funny thing that he points out is that by EPA's logic, then that EPA couldn't the, the more costly the regulations that EPA imposes, and the more regulations that EPA imposes under this theory, the more jobs we would create, you know, and so we could actually have a regulation uh, as expensive as the entire gross national product, and it would be. In, you know, all of our wealth would go into complying with this regulation and somehow that would be a net job creator. I mean, it's one of the silliest arguments that I've ever seen an agency make. Um, and my, my colleague, who's, he's quite a young guy in early 20s, I think he was the first person to spot this and uh, show the absurd conclusions to which it leads. And so I think some of your viewers will, uh, will find that amusing to read tomorrow.
1: Yeah, I'll check that out. I don't think I've, I've read his works. So it's good It's good to hear that there's young blood uh, in the field. And uh, it's funny for me to call someone young, but but <laughs> I'm no longer in my early 20s. So, uh, I, I, so I can do it. Uh, Marlo, thanks so much for coming on. Can you stick around for one second uh, so I can talk to you after the show? Sure, Alex. All right. And with that, thanks again to uh, Dr. Marlo Lewis for joining us this Power Hour. I pretty much we pretty much covered everything I wanted to say about coal and more, so I don't have much of a wrap-up. Um, but just I hope you guys recognize this issue of looking at all of these things in the full context and recognizing that both in terms of economic prosperity, in terms of environmental improvement, coal, and other form, coal technology, coal growth, and other forms of energy growth are completely essential, and that if we oppose them, we are opposing individual human beings' lives, their liberty uh and their environment. And with that, that's all we have for this time. So if you want to contact me, as always, you can email Alex at industrialprogress.net. Love mail, hate mail, criticism, praise, whatever you want, happy to have it. Um so until next time, next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, Liberty and the Pursuit of Energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.